The theme of this evening's talk is going to be Buddha and the devil. And I'd like to start by by going back to Dante's Inferno, which I'm sure you're familiar with. That part of the Divine Comedy in which Dante, in the company of the poet Virgil, descend through the nine circles of hell. And when they reach the very bottom circle, they find themselves on a vast plain of ice and they see the, the, the suffering denizens of the hell realm frozen into the ice itself, completely static. And from the center of this plain of ice there is a cold wind that comes at them in waves. Dante compares it to the, the wind coming off a slowly turning windmill. And Virgil then encourages Dante to walk into that wind. And so the two of them proceed along the ice. And as the mists and the fogs clear, they behold the devil, Satan, at the very center of the plain of ice. His body is encased in the ice up until his chest and he has bat-like wings, a kind of demonic variant on the wings of the angels, of which he is the fallen angel. And his, he has three faces, a bit like some of these Tibetan deities. And his tears are, his eyes are running with tears and he's chewing sinners in each mouth and their blood is dripping down his body. But the image, <laughs> the image is one of um, profound distress and particularly when we think of the devil as trapped in ice, only able to move the upper part of his body. We have an impression there of a state of diabolical stuckness, entrapment, the inability to move, a frozen, cold creature, a heart perhaps turned to ice, a world stuck in one particular perspective, unable to escape. And I think this suggests that at the heart of the demonic, the heart of the devil, lies a certain grip, a certain grasp, a certain tightening of the mind, a tightening of the emotions, a closing down, and if we turn to the Buddhist texts, there's a passage in, in one of the early suttas where the Buddha says, whenever a person grasps, Mara stands beside them. Mara is the, the Buddhist devil, the Buddhist Satan, a figure I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And Mara is identified by the Buddha as the most powerful thing there is in the world that one seeks to overcome in one's quest for enlightenment, freedom, compassion. It's that which quite literally blocks us, that hems us in, that ties us down. And at the root of this, is a certain kind of grasping, a tightening. So we have here, I think, a, a reflection of Dante's powerful image in a tradition quite different from that of the Judeo-Christian one, 
in which a similar kind of recognition is made. The, the, the demonic, the diabolical, is that which somehow traps us. And we can think of this mythologically, but I feel that in our present culture we would almost invariably think of this as a, a way of talking about a psychological condition, a psycho-spiritual uh, a psycho-spiritual reality. That the demonic is actually within us. It's within a particular attitude we have, a particular holding we have of our own identity. A kind of tight closing around the cell, the nugget of me, that kind of freezes it in place, this sometimes almost desperate clinging to preserve that which we feel is the only thing in this fluctuating, changing, ephemeral world that offers us any sense of, of stability, any sense of security, any sense of permanence. And it feels so intensely real. And I think for many traditions, this deep realness of this hold is sometimes even the basis for the idea that we may then survive physical death and get reborn in a heaven or in another world. It's a deep, deep tightening. In, the, in some of the Tibetan Vajrayana teachings, they compare this grasping to a kind of knottedness that we're somehow internally tied up in knots. Some of you may be familiar with the, the idea of the chakras and the, 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 the psychic veins or channels that run through the body. And sometimes the chakras are thought of as, as rather sexy. But in fact, they are, they, are, they are ways of talking about the knots that literally tie us up inside, shut us down. And the aim of Vajrayana practice actually is to, is to learn to get the energies to flow freely through the body-mind system in such a way that the knottedness of the chakras is released. But this blocking aspect of the devil is also there right in the, in the Hebrew word for Satan, which means uh, the opposer, the adversary, that which um, is against us in some way, that, w- that against which we need to, to work in order to be free, to be wise, to be kind. It's all those counter-forces that instinctively push us in a direction against what we most deeply yearn to, to realize and to be. And when the Greeks translated Satan into Greek, they used the word diabolos, from which we get diabolical. And diabolos means literally that which throws something across one's path. It suggests again a sense of, of blockage. And if we think of what we mean by a path, and again, this is an idea that is, runs throughout the spiritual and religious traditions of the world, a path, when one is on a path at least, is that which allows one an unimpeded freedom to move. If you think of a path, imagine one, for example, running across the hills behind here, it seems as though it's like a brown line imposed on a green background. Whereas if one were to go right up to that brown line and get down on one's hands and knees and say, well, what is this path really? What you would find is that the path is just the place where grass or trees or boulders are not. It's a gap. A path is a gap. It's a clearing. It's a space 
where nothing gets in your way. It's a human-sized gap that runs through the world that enables us to move through it. And so when the Buddha talks of the middle way or the middle path, when Jesus speaks of being the, the way, the truth, and the life, the way, the path, in Taoism we have a whole religion dedicated to Tao, which means path, which means way. In Islam they talk of finding and following the straight path of Allah. And we also find, in both Buddhism and in the Judeo-Christian and Islamic traditions, the notion of the demonic as that which blocks that path, that which prevents us from realizing that unimpeded movement through which we can be fully in the world, in which we can look deeply and clearly and achieve an understanding, a clearer understanding of who we are. The whole notion of path is a dynamic concept. It might seem static. And again, even a word like emptiness, which is so ubiquitous in Buddhism, makes one think very often of a kind of a kind of an inner space or a transcendent space that one would seek to, to come to rest in or seek to gain some mystical vision into. But in fact, emptiness is just a way of talking about the path. It's a way of talking about being in this world without impediment. And that means being able to move and to act freely. And the devil gets in the way. The devil prevents that movement. Now one of the one of the classic images in the Buddhist in Buddhist iconography and also in the heroic account of the Buddha's enlightenment is this episode called the conquest of Mara the conquest of the devil and this is in a way the critical point that enables the Enlightenment then to break forth. And in fact, one can think of the two really as almost the same. And so you have this this beautiful image of the Buddha sitting there looking very serene and he has his right hand touching the earth. He's calling the earth to witness. And around him is a kind of demonic halo of all manner of rather gruesome and aggressive looking Indian figures, demons, goblins, spooks, firing arrows at him, making ghastly grimaces at him. And yet he remains completely untouched, unfazed. And it's at that moment that the Buddha discovers perhaps what is the the central freedom, the crucial freedom of his awakening, of his enlightenment, of his experience, and that is the freedom of emptiness, the freedom to be able to move through the world, to live in the world in spite of the presence of this demonic host, as it were, these endless obstacles, these endless impedimenta to our freedom. But often it's felt amongst people who um, are familiar with Buddhism that now that Mara has been conquered, now that Satan has been overcome, then everything, as it were, will now run smoothly and without any hint of resistance. And yet what is peculiar is that after the Enlightenment, until the end of the Buddha's life, for the next 40 years, Mara continuously reappears, continuously finds himself tempting, teasing, provoking. Um, He's that little voice in the Buddha's own mind that is still doubting, is still, as it were, trying to undermine this freedom that the Buddha has realized. So Mara is not deleted 
from the Buddha's experience at enlightenment. He sort of wiped off the hard disk. (laughs) But Mara continues to be there. Mara is in a way, I think, simply an acknowledgement of the, the biological, the psychological, the neurological, the physical, the environmental limitations that life invariably is set within. And that's not something that one can, as it were, just wipe out. That the freedom of the Buddha, the enlightenment of the Buddha, is one in which he, lear- he has discovered how to live with the devil without being of the devil. And this is, I think, hinted at in many passages, or not even hinted, I think quite clearly stated. He says, for example, that he has become invisible to the devil, that he has blindfolded the devil, Mara. And this is not the language of having gotten rid of something, this is the language of having entered into another relationship with these forces and powers, the principalities and powers of the New Testament. There's another time when you hear Mara, the devil himself, bemoaning how little purchase he has over this person, the Buddha. And he says, that he said, he, he, uh, this is Mara, the devil speaking, he says, I remember once seeing a rock, uh, sorry, I remember once seeing a lump of fat on the ground. Uh, sorry, I'm getting this confused. He says, I remember once seeing a crow who saw a lump of fat on the ground, and the crow thought, oh wow, food. But when the crow dug its beak into this thing, it turned out not to be a lump of fat at all, it turned out to be a rock. And so the crow flew away in disgust. And Mara says, and the same, I feel exactly the same, regarding my relation to the Buddha that what appears to be another sort of succulent morsel of human mind is in fact like that rock. There's nowhere that Mara can gain purchase. There's nowhere where he can get a foothold in. So he's still around. But the Buddha has somehow become invisible to him. And I think the key to the insight or the nature of the Buddha's understanding of the world had something to do with his capacity to be in the world but not of it, fully present to life, but not deceived or tricked or overwhelmed or taken over by the necessary limits and constraints that life imposes. And in fact, he the Buddha uses as one of his epithets for Mara, for the devil, he says Mara is the antaka in Pali. Anta means the end, it means limit, it means border, it means constraint, confinement. And ka is that which imposes limits, imposes constraints, imposes confinement. So Mara is that which restricts us. Mara is that which limits us. Mara is that which gives us the sense sometimes of being kind of oppressed. And you know what it's like. You're in the midst of your daily routines and sometimes it feels there's just so much to do. You have so much on your plate, so many demands on you, that you begin to inwardly feel that the world is somehow pressing you down. You feel, as it were, overwhelmed by the sheer complexity and enormity of what life throws at you. And then then someone dies, and then there's a phone call telling you of some crisis somewhere else, and then someone desperately needs this. And it's so easy to succumb to that pressure and give in to feelings of, of hopelessness, of inadequacy, I simply can't cope, there's nothing I can do. And we become, as it were, kind of almost depressed by the sheer pressure of things. 
And that, in a way, is another style, another approach of Mara, of the demonic, that somehow traps us, that somehow overwhelms us. And the Buddha says that he overcomes Mara not by putting forth a counter, you know, an equivalently powerful counterforce by destroying it, but he uses again a very compelling image. He says that he says that although the the armies of Mara are extraordinarily powerful, he will overcome them as easily as someone who throws a stone at an unfired pot and the unfired pot just crumbles and disintegrates. Now, an unfired pot from a distance looks just like a fired pot. It seems solid, it seems capable of holding water, something that could take quite some effort to break. But if it has not been fired, it is actually extremely fragile. And you can just lob a stone and as soon as it hits it, the thing will just puff, dissolve to nothing. So Mara, so Buddha's conquest of Mara is not achieved by force, but it's achieved by seeing the world in a totally different way. In other words, to cease to be, as it were, overcome or convinced by Mara's impression of invincibility is to see that the, this, the, the, when, when we give in to this sense that I can't cope, we're in a way empowering precisely those things, those pressures that seem to be weighing us down. In other words, our perception of the situation contributes to the actual suffering and sense of hopelessness that we feel. If we could only see it another way, if we could see it as just a play of conditions that come and that go, that are not in themselves as intrinsically potent as they appear sometimes, that will allow us a way through these dilemmas in which we maintain our freedom and where in which we can then be effective in life rather than being oppressed by it. And Mara says to Buddha on one occasion, he says, he says, I feel just like a crab whose legs have been torn off by children, that all of my distortions, my maneuvers and my strategies have been seen through by you. So again, Mara is not taken out of the picture, but Mara has been somehow disabled. There's a tendency here, of course, to think of this in exclusively psychological terms. This is, I think, a great predilection of the kind of society, the kind of culture we live in, to look at all of these ideas as inward. It's got to do with what's going on inside me. But the concept of Mara, the concept of the devil in Buddhism, extends beyond the merely psychological into the actual fabric and structure of life itself. And there's a story that illustrates this very well. Now this is an episode that took place long after the Enlightenment and the conquest of Mara. The Buddha is teaching some monks. It's obviously in the country somewhere. And there appears on the horizon a farmer and this man is described in great detail. He's really funky and scruffy. His hair's tied up in a knot. His feet are covered with mud. He's got a whip over his shoulder. Raggedy, hempen clothes. And this farmer approaches the Buddha and the monks and says, have you seen my oxen? And the Buddha replies to the farmer, you're not interested in oxen, Mara. And Mara, as farmer, replies, I am the eyes, I am the ears, I am the nose, I am the tongue, I am the body, I am the mind. I am what you see, what you hear, what you smell, what you taste, what you touch, what you feel. 
what you think. I am visual consciousness, audio consciousness, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, tactile, mental consciousness. Where can you go to escape me? So Mara clearly here identifies with the phenomenal world itself. It's not just something going on in the mind, but the limit condition of life is one that is built into our biology, it's built into our neurology, it's built into the very nature of the world itself. Now the problem with the with this kind of language and using words like the devil is that we are prone we are prone then to think of this in in moralistic terms that this is a way of saying that the world is somehow evil or bad and the buddha of course is all that is good but that i think is a very superficial way of looking at it and it certainly doesn't accord with this deeper insight of the buddha's understanding of the demonic, as that which limits us. It's also, of course, that which, if it were not for these things, we would not gain insight, we would not be able to exercise compassion. But at the same time, these are the limiting circumstances of our life. Mara is also identified with death. And again, it's peculiarly not just a Buddhist idea, but we find this in Christianity as well that the ultimate limiting condition of our existence is the fact that we will die. And Mara appears to the Buddha not just as a farmer or not just as the sort of confusions of the mind, but Mara also appears in the form of um, a snake, uh, an elephant, an ox, and sometimes even as uh, boulders that um, explode close to the Buddha, in order to frighten and to terrorize the Buddha. And this is, of course, a way of talking about the natural world. In fact, only a few days ago here, when we were on retreat last week, we, we experienced an earthquake. And um, I was lying in one of the dormitory rooms up there, looking at the ceiling, trying to get to sleep, and suddenly the whole room shook. Now, this doesn't happen in Europe very often. <laughs> But there's that moment when the shaking starts and you don't know when it's going to stop. You don't know how far that is going to go. You don't know now if this is actually your last moments before you end up somewhere at the bottom of the San Andreas Fault. (laughs) (laughs) But it's... Mara, you see, I think, stands for for the precariousness of life, for the arbitrariness of life, for the unpredictability of the very condition that we find ourselves in. And in that sense, it is always here, it is always there. And the Buddha, as it were, is a way of talking about how we can be with these things in a way that we're not oppressed by them, we're not terrified by them, but we can keep that clear, steady, attentive, wise, kind perspective in the midst of all of this. So what does the Buddha say to Mara, the farmer? He says, where there are no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, where there are no sights, no sounds, no smells, no tastes, no tactile sensations, no thoughts, there there is no place for you, Mara. Now the Buddha's not talking about after he's dead. He's a warm, breathing human. What he's evoking, and again, some of you will probably be surprised to hear in those last passages what sounds very much like the Heart Sutra, which is a text that comes much, much later. The Buddha's talking of being in a world, being in this world, being here, in such a way that he no longer grasps onto the segregated specifics of life. He doesn't divide himself as being a closed ego in here, in opposition to all the other selves out there that are closed 
egos within their own bodies. He's no longer locked into a picture of the world in which things are defined in opposition to other things. That he's opened up through his experience into a world that is profoundly interconnected, that nothing is existing in and of itself. That emptiness, this experience that he's trying to hint at here, this emptiness is a world in which certain fictions have broken down. The fiction of alienation, of isolation, of separateness, this has somehow fallen away. So it's in such a sense, both internally of a sense of self that's no longer neurotically invested in this tight nugget of me, nor in a world of things that we desperately want to possess or to get rid of, likewise with people, but a world that is simply an ongoing dance, if you wish, of causes, of conditions, of circumstance that generates pain, that generates joy, and in which if one could see it that way, not just intellectually but intuitively, one would find a freedom in which one is no longer blocked, one is no longer impeded or trapped both by one's own attachments, one's own graspings, nor by what often feels to be the pressures from the world itself. So emptiness could perhaps be understood as simply the experience of not grasping anymore, of not clinging on anymore. As we've already mentioned, to think of emptiness as a state already freezes it into something that is quite antithetical to what it means. Emptiness is a kind of letting go. It's a release. It's a dropping away of those things that inhibit us, those things that block us. One perhaps could speak of it more effectively as an emptying rather than an emptiness. And one of the consequences of this emptiness or this emptying is that it opens us up to the suffering of the world. A lot of Buddhist writings tend to suggest that the experience of emptiness is primarily a cognitive thing. In other words, it's something you gain some deep insight into, some deep knowledge of, that you now know yourself better, you understand the world, and it fails to recognize, at least when it's often you know, not fully spelt out, that emptiness also has an affective dimension, that this grasping, this knotting, this tightening, is also a kind of emotional defense against the enormity and the overwhelmingness of the suffering and the pain around us. And it's curious in some Mahayana writings, they don't speak of understanding emptiness, they talk of tolerating emptiness. That the world that is open up when we let go of some of these defenses is in a way overwhelming. Something that we in a way, have to bear. And one of the reasons that we're not, as it were, drawn to this kind of experience of not grasping, of emptying, is precisely because we probably intuitively sense that it would deprive us of that, that carapace of security, that shell, that body armor, that keeps us emotionally locked into our own melodramas and those of the people who we think of in the circuit of mine, my friends and my family, my colleagues and so forth and so on. And yet as this falls away, this grasping, it opens it up not just a vision of the world, but it also opens up feelings about the world 
which may be very hard to, to bear. And it's at this point, it's precisely at this point where the wisdom of emptiness morphs into the compassion that seeks to resolve, seeks to respond to the suffering of others. And in all of Buddhist literature, including these great grandiose Mahayana writings about bodhisattvas and so on, seeking to attain enlightenment for all beings, I've not found any passage that expresses the Buddha's compassion so so effectively and so powerfully as a remote text in the Vinaya, which is the the writings on the monastic discipline. And in this story, Buddha and his attendant Ananda find themselves visiting a group of monks and they're shocked to see that there's a monk lying on the ground, sick with dysentery, in a pool of his own urine and excrement. And they say to this monk, but why aren't the other monks helping you? And he says, well, they won't help me because they say I'm not doing anything for them. And so Buddha and Ananda then clean the monk, they wash him, they pick him up, they find a bed for him, they place him on the bed, they make sure that he's comfortable. And then the Buddha goes to the rest of the community and says, why weren't you caring for this guy? And they say, well, he wasn't doing anything for us. And so the Buddha says, look, as members of this community, you have no father to care for you, no mother to care for you. If you don't care for one another, who will care for you? And that anyone who um, tends, uh, anyone who seeks to tend to me, the Buddha, should tend to the sick. Anyone who tends to me should tend to the sick. This is a, a very uh, striking remark. It, it's rare to find that degree of, of specificity in Buddhist texts, which often are very sort of abstract and general when it comes to the suffering of others, all sentient beings. It's easy to have compassion for all sentient beings. It's difficult to have compassion for someone you find difficult to be with. It reminds one of that uh, the Peanuts cartoon where Lucy says, I love humanity. It's other people I can't stand. (laughs) (laughs) But the point here is that the Buddha, I feel, is, 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 is emphasizing how if one tends to the Buddha, and clearly he doesn't mean to himself personally, but if one aspires to awakening, let's put it that way, if one is concerned about awakening, enlightenment, these things that are, these ideas endlessly paraded around, then one should be concerned for those who are sick. Now, again, one might think of this as a kind of rather high-minded encouragement to be more compassionate and more caring and so on. But I think there's an even profounder point being made. And perhaps if we cast our minds back to the story of the Buddha's own quest, how as a young man he grew disillusioned with the trappings of wealth, the trappings of um, prosperity and becoming a king and all of these things. And he asked his father if he could go out and see the world beyond the palace walls. And when he did so, he encountered a sick person, an aging person, and a corpse. And it was on seeing these things that he saw in a way his own dilemma. And he saw the fact of his own life being indistinguishable from the lives of those who were suffering, who were sick, who were aging, who died. 
And that's what prompted the whole quest for enlightenment. It didn't come out of an idea that, you know, so some deep yearning for God or some deep yearning for spiritual truth. That the Buddha's quest was prompted by his encounter with the suffering of existence in a specific way. A sick person, an aging person, a corpse. And I can only understand this awakening of the Buddha, this enlightenment, as a resolution, as a profoundly authentic response to that initial question. What is this life in which we suffer, in which others suffer? The, the seed of awakening is already present in, in the case of the story I just recounted, the man lying in a pool of his own urine and excrement. It's not as though that is one thing and the enlightenment is another. But like a seed and a plant, the two grow, or one grows into the other. The seed, over time, is nourished, is cultivated, is watered, is brought into being. It evolves into something magnificent that gives food, that produces fruit and flowers. And in the same way, that initial experience or concern for the suffering of life is what becomes the seed which gives rise to enlightenment, to awakening, to the Buddha. So in other words, awakening is already prefigured in the suffering of this sick man. And we can see here, I feel, what is, to me at least, essential to the Buddhist practice, the practice of the Dharma, or if you don't like the words Buddhism or Dharma, just, let's say, living in a true and authentic way, is that the wisdom we seek, if it is to be genuinely transformative, it's not just going to provide us with some esoteric or mystical information, you know, wonderful experience we had, very inspiring, but effectively cut off from our affective and emotional life, then it's not really, I feel, the wisdom the Buddha was speaking of. The, the wisdom of emptiness, the wisdom of, as it were, being free of Mara, being free of the demonic, is one in which we encounter the suffering of the world in the same moment with an open, empathetic, compassionate response. So when we convert these ideas into a way of looking at our practice, then of course, yes, learning to be more understanding, more insightful into the nature of things, into the nature of oneself, that is certainly one important part of it. But at the same time, that should not be thought of as something intrinsically separate from a similar cultivation of our sensitivity, of our awareness, of our own suffering, but in a much more infinitely demanding way, the suffering of others. So that wisdom and compassion are not two things. It's not as though one day we practice wisdom and then the next day we practice compassion. But ultimately, at least, they merge into one another. And again, I don't think one wants to make too, too grand a thing of this, of thinking, well, I've got to, I've got to practice all this meditation and do all these things, and then perhaps at some distant time in the future when I've really sorted myself out, then I'll be able to be engaged in the world. That is, again, to put the whole thing into a merely linear, temporal model. And that can be somehow comforting. We can put off the difficult bit you know, tolerating and being open to what's going on around us for the sake of some kind of spiritual, um, you know, process that's going on within us. 
that we know from certainly the Chinese tradition, but I think pretty much all the Buddhist traditions, a recognition that this wisdom and compassion are not the gold at the end of the rainbow, but they're actually qualities that in some way are already imminent, are already within us. That the practice is not so much of setting out to attain them, but of, as it were, allowing our life to be sufficiently open such that flashes of insight and flashes of compassion can break in at any time. In in, in Zen and in Vajrayana particularly, there's this sense that we are already somehow Buddha. That it would be, you know, if wisdom and compassion were so far away from us, then how is it that we would resonate with them at all? That there's part of us that, 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 that intuitively knows what is meant when we talk of you know, some very wise statement or insight or we're very moved by a person like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or whatever, that that response is already awakened within us. It's something that can come out at any moment. It may, of course, be covered over again very quickly. But the capacity, the possibility, is always present. Now, to just wind this up and bring it perhaps a little bit more down to earth. This winter, uh, this last winter, Martine and I spent two months teaching in South Africa. And we've been going there on and off for the last 10 or so years. And we've often gone, in fact we've mainly been based, at a retreat center in KwaZulu-Natal, up in the foothills of the Drakensberg Mountains. And for the first two times we went, we lived within this rather glorious enclave of spirituality. Gorgeously trimmed lawns, wonderful food, beautiful views, and of course just white people. And it's only now, in the last visit we went, that the Buddhist center has, as it were, stepped out of its bubble and is now actively engaging with the life of the Zulu village, which is half a mile away, which you see from the center, a collection of huts running along the hillside. And for the first time in 10 years, and I feel a bit you know, ashamed of this, we actually went into the village, and we saw how the people there lived. And we saw how, although we had running water and flushing toilets, you know, half a mile in our little enclave, you hear these people had two taps for a village of about a thousand people. They had no uh, flush toilets. Um, they lived in, uh, they had no electricity. They uh, live uh, crowded together, cramped in, 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 in very inadequate housing. They um, all have eye troubles because they don't have proper ventilation for the cooking of the wood fires. They don't have chimneys or anything. Or anything. But um, in, in nowadays, pretty much throughout southern Africa, and this village is no exception, 30 to 40 percent of the inhabitants of that village are HIV positive. We we met. Uh, we we were just passing by a, 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 a one house, and the friend we were with, we were with pointed out and said there are four children living in that. House. They're both the parents have died of AIDS. Their relatives give them a minimum of support, but they're effectively abandoned to take care of themselves. That um, the school is three very simple, long kind of Nissan type huts. There's 350 kids in the school, seven teachers. Um, they have not even the most basic necessities for education, for learning, for somehow you know, being able to develop themselves such that they can get out of this poverty trap. That most of the village are unemployed and they eke a subsistence living just through cultivating 
a little plot of maize and some cabbages, and they might keep a few goats and chickens. Those who are lucky enough to have work do menial service jobs or agricultural labor for which they are paid between 500 and 600 rand a month, which at current rate of exchange is between 50 and 60 dollars. And the people who bring in that income have to support sometimes up to eight or ten others on fifty or sixty dollars a month. And in many ways, uh, South Africa is a kind of microcosm of the global situation. Um, it, the, the, the difference, though, is that prosperity of Californian levels coexists side by side with third world impoverishment and lack of opportunity. It's not as though these people are, are in some other continent somewhere. They're actually living next door. So you have a first world and a third world cheek by jowl. And it's a very sobering and enlightening um, metaphor for the world in which we all live. Now, as part of that experience, Martina and I decided that we would try to do whatever we could to be of some help to this community. I mean, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny little gesture, given the enormity of not only South Africa, but vast tracts of the world we live in today. And so we approached the uh, headmaster of the local school. We felt that one of the most important things was for to be able to provide the children with an education such that they could actually have skills whereby they could generate income, where they could, as it were, slowly, and it's not going to happen overnight, but in a generation or two or three, develop you know, a more um, comfortable and well-provided lifestyle for themselves and their families. And we asked the headmaster of the school what he, what he really needed, and he said, I need a photocopier. Because the, you know, although the kids, are, they, they do have the school available, they can't afford to buy the textbooks. A photocopy machine allows them to have one textbook from which they can then provide every kid with the basic learning tools. So um, we then, in relation to the in, you know, doing it through the people living at the Buddhist retreat center, we said that we would uh, try to raise this money um, by giving a percentage of our own uh, dana, what we are given when we teach, uh, towards this project. We have, in fact, already now raised enough for, for the first year, and about three weeks ago they bought the photocopier and they installed it, and it's now working. And they have a maintenance contract and everything else, so it's completely secure. <laughs> <laughs> and we've now actually managed to generate enough uh, through donations people have given us and also through our own percent and percentage of our own earnings. That we've now got enough for another year. And so we're now at the point where we can actually now consider going back to the school, going back to the headmaster and, and seeing what other things we can begin to help support to build up the basic amenities of this project. So this evening's talk is a benefit for this school. And everything that you put in the bowl outside will go directly to the people in the Buddhist Center in South Africa who will then make sure it gets into you know, a good, useful project that will help build up the uh, school that we're supporting. So that's all I have to say. Um, I hope you will be generous, and we will, we and I'm sure all the kids will be extremely grateful as well. We still have a bit of time left. I'd be um, happy to take some questions. Yeah. Would I say that Mara is the same as Dukkha? Dukkha means suffering. Um, not exactly. Although I think there is a close connection. 
Um, traditionally, Mara is spoken of as the uh, as the kilesha, which means like the kind of the inner afflictions of the mind. Mara is also spoken of as the skanda, which means the the aggregates of of the physical and the mental world, and that would of course include dukkha or suffering and pleasure as well. Mara is also sukha a lot of the time. Mara often feels like it's a lot of fun. And Mara is then also understood as death. So that, of course, is an aspect of, of, of suffering for sure. So yes, there's a very close link. Yeah. Yes? Sorry? Well, the school you see is actually... This is another story. There is a, there's a road that runs um, from Ikopo, which is the bigger town, through to the next town, and the village is on the right side of the road. The school is on the left side of the road. There is an electric pylon line running the length of the whole road, and the school is plugged into it. The village could have electricity like that, but the headman, the Induna, the chief, refuses to allow electricity to be put into the village because, and this is his argument, it will upset the cows at night. (laughs) I suspect there's an awful lot more to it than that. Yes? I think compassion is probably the most effective way to intervene in the world. And, and this can operate at many different levels. It can certainly be an attempt to engage with the specific suffering of a specific person in a specific place. And I think it's important that this compassion not be generalized into changing the nature of capitalist society, for example, but always, as it were, be rooted in, in a human relationship that this is concerning people like us. But of course, according to our own particular skills, according to our own particular temperament, then we will adopt strategies that for us are the most effective way of realizing that compassion. For some it might be working at a more macro level through NGOs and so forth, trying to actually affect government policies and things like that. For others, it'll be far more in an immediate level of trying to respond to needs of specific communities and specific people. I think it's a fairly, I think it's a somewhat sad commentary on Buddhism that we have to talk of engaged Buddhists. It feels that we've somehow lost something which should, I feel, according to what I was saying this evening, simply be a reflex of our practice. We don't have to think that we're making some great gesture of being engaged. It also implies, of course, that there's a disengaged Buddhism. And there might well be one. But um, it's, and it has, I think, been probably valuable to highlight with this notion of engagement. Um, you know, the, you know the, 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 that, that is very much an integral part of the practice. But, uh, but I feel in, in, in the core values and the core teachings of Buddhism, there's really not such a distinction really being made. Buddhism historically may have failed to have, in a way, translated its values into what we would consider the social, the economic, the political life of its community. But I think if we're true to the core ideas, then all of us are really called upon both to be wise and to be compassionate without really trying to make too sharp a distinction between the two poles. Yes.
I'm certain that's the case. And um, again, not being a native of here and not and, and being rather spoilt in the more prosperous parts of Marin County, it's not anything that one actually sees. But I imagine from what I'm told that parts of San Francisco and parts of Oakland and perhaps part of the, the farming areas out uh, towards Sacramento presumably also have areas of impoverishment and so forth. I, I, I imagine it's on our doorstep too if we're able to look. But the thing with South Africa is that it is so vividly in your face. Um, and of course we do often like to somehow immure ourselves against these things. But of course it's all around. It's all around. And there couldn't be also people living in apparent prosperity, also suffering from depression or from despair. But it's all around us. Were there other hands up? Or? Oh, yeah. Well, I think each of us has to come to terms with that in our own way. I mean, I can speak for myself, I can't speak for you. The, 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 I think the crucial thing is, 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 to, is to recognize that double imperative. The imperative for understanding, for wisdom, for clarity of mind, and the imperative for kindness, for compassion, and for empathy, and how to actually respond to suffering. And... Um, you know, I think that's something we have to live with also as a continuous ongoing question, a continuous ongoing struggle. I don't think there's an answer to this question. And I don't think it really helps either in the cultivation of compassion to have some kind of you know, theoretical plan as to what one might achieve. In some ways, I think one is simply called upon to respond to the suffering in the, of our of the world without thinking of the result, to do what one can. And if, that, if this were taken up in a much broader scale, if everybody in this room, for example, could sponsor a school in Africa, I mean, Martine and I do not, we're, we're not wealthy, we do not have great resources, but we can make an actual significant difference. And if, ever, you know, if, if we could all do something like that, I'm not saying this is a wonderful example, it's actually a very minor gesture in a way, but it shows, and this is what South Africa showed to us, was you know, how what for us is a relatively small amount of our income can be used to tremendous effect in places where people simply have no sense of the kind of prosperity and comfort in which we live. But of course, each of us has to actually you know, look at ourselves and look at the world and, see, and just ask that question, what can I do? And perhaps one way of staying with that question is to treat it as a kind of koan, a kind of Zen meditation. You know, what do I do? Not who am I, but what do I do? And hold that question in a, in a quiet, contemplative, but utterly attentive and real way. And actually to allow that question, as it were, to sink into your, into your gut rather than remain as a kind of spiritual exercise. And I think by the more that you hold that question and make it come alive within you, the more that you, as it were, prime yourself for actually taking a risk to respond. Because I think compassion or empathy calls for risk-taking. We don't know what the results are going to be. But we cannot but respond. And that, I think, is what frees up the logjam. You see, I think Mara, the demonic, somehow is always telling us there's nothing we can do. It's that little voice. It's like the little, little voice that says to the Buddha, it's hopeless, you know. You'll never be able to sort of make people understand this stuff. You can have a much better time doing something else. And here we find that same little voice saying, the suffering of the world is so enormous. Nothing that I can do. 
I think that is the voice of Mara, anyway, in, a, uh, in, in the field of uh, compassion. But I can't give you the answer to that. You have to sort that out for yourself. One last question, then we have to close. There you go. I think that's an excellent note on which to end. Do not ask leaders. Do not wait for leaders. What was the next thing? Do what must be done one by one. That, I think, is a good answer to your question. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.